Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code podcast for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MyTake. Worried you don't have the most advanced research tech or that your partners won't be able to keep up with the speed of your business? MyTake is your answer. Their innovative proprietary insight community platform and team of fast and flexible researchers will ensure your organization truly integrates the voice of the customer into decision-making. My take, tech forward, people centered. Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy here with another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Appreciate you sharing your time with us. And uh, today, our guest is Jason Alliger, the Senior Director of Consumer Insights and Strategy at Traeger Grills. Jason, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Lenny. Glad to be here as a uh, grill, well, I won't say grill master, but I aspire to be a grill master. (laughs) I'm particularly excited for this conversation. So why don't you tell us a little bit about you and about Traeger Grills, and we'll go from there. Sure. Yeah. So kind of like what you said, I run consumer insights and strategy at Traeger Grills. And basically in my role, I just solve complex problems. It's a little different than most market research jobs because I work in a very interesting category, which is grills. So most Americans have grills and Traeger's been disrupting the grilling space. We're kind of positioned more like a lifestyle brand. So, you know, running market research you know, while I'm doing all the normal reports and everything like that, I also get sent pictures of, you know, the latest Traeger tattoos people are getting. I get to meet babies named Traeger. I even get sent uh, obituaries of people mentioning Traeger in their obituaries. It becomes part of somebody's life. And so you're working in an industry and for a company that just means a lot to people. And then besides working full-time at Traeger, I'm also an adjunct professor at Brigham Young University, and I teach a course on storytelling with data. So uh, that's that's what I like to do for fun, I guess. <laughs> so in other words, you really are a researcher to your core. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, let's go there for a second because all of us have our origin stories. There's very few people that I have met who choose market research as the career. Most of us stumble into it. Sounds like that might not be the case for you. Yeah, I've been very deliberate in my career path, I guess. I mean, a quick run through, I got my undergrad in advertising, but very quickly, even in an ad agency, you find that your clients need data, they need insights, whether the creative's going to work. And so I found myself kind of gravitating towards that. I went back to school and got my MBA, spent a little bit of time at General Mills doing global consumer insights on Nature Valley, actually and then moved to Traeger. So I feel like everything in my career is kind of built to this. I've also been teaching at a university now for quite some time. And I think when it's something you really care about and love, there's something very powerful about kind of sharing your craft with others. And it's just very fulfilling. Agreed. Agreed. No matter whether it's more deliberate like you've been, or you stumble into it like I and many others have, it's still finding your avocation and that sense of this is what I'm meant to do. 
and the immense amount of satisfaction that comes to that. Now, I, I heard you say you solve problems. And often when people ask me what I do, that's simply what I say, because it's, it can be difficult to explain market research to, to non-researchers. Right. Right. You know, I, I, I solve problems. And like, well, are you a fixer for the mob? No, no. <laughs> 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 I just help people. So that's a great way to, to look at it. So I appreciate you kind of sharing that perspective overall. So let's dive in a little bit more about Traeger because in my kind of primitive uh, <laughs> primitive man view on grilling, you know, I finally moved away personally from, from charcoal to propane and the past couple of years have been smoking and I haven't gotten further than that. Tell me what's different about Traeger grills. And I think that would be a good pathway into telling the story with data for the rest of our conversation. Yeah, I'll, I'm happy to spend a minute talking about Traeger. And and this is no solicitation. I mean, you, you can use whatever grill you want. Uh, but with running market research here, essentially gas grills have been in a long-term decline. So, you know, 10 years ago, gas grills were, you know, about 80% of all grill sales and charcoal grills were about 20%. And then wood pellet grills, you know, and specifically Traeger was kind of pioneered the way we had kind of all the patents on wood pellet grilling. Essentially, we use wood pellets instead of propane or charcoal, and they're automatically fed. So imagine in your grill, you have a little fire and you have wood burning. So it's just very simple. It's, it's like a little fire burning and then just has a fan blowing on it to circulate it around your grill. And so with kind of the rise of Traeger, there, there's been a sharp decline in gas grilling. And so basically as people discover this method of cooking, it's easier, it's, it's much more consistent and the flavor is, is just unparalleled. It just unlocks a lot more food than what you would normally cook on a grill. And it's, it's kind of aspirational, right? I mean, most of our customers are cooking brisket and ribs, you know, vegetables, uh, chicken. I, I mean, the best steak you've ever eaten. I mean, it's, it's a lot of these things that you always kind of hoped and wished that you could cook that you finally unlock with the push of a button, you can do that. That is, is very cool. As I, for our audience before the, uh, the show, I mentioned that we're, we're relocating. I'm going to buy a new grill. So honestly, I hadn't thought about triggers, but I darn sure am now. So uh, that, <laughs> that'll be on the list. So it, it's interesting because you mentioned the decline of gas grills as Traeger has, has risen. And I would call that disruption, but Honestly, it's probably not an arena that people think about as a disruptive category. You know, grilling. Well, you know, we've all been grilling forever. So can talk a little bit about what that journey has been like to create disruption in a category that was just obviously ripe for it, but also just very traditional and in perception. What's that been like? It's been a blast. I mean, it is so fun disrupting a sleepy category. And again, when you look at it objectively, it seems so obvious, right? I mean, grills before wood pellet grills were just bent steel. And here comes in a company that just adds a small motor and, and a different fuel source into a grill and suddenly unlocks all this flavor, right? And so I would kind of classify Traeger in, in kind of this group of disruptive companies. So to list a, a few that I kind of look at as we're kind of like in it disrupting a category. So 
you know, if you look at what Uber did to taxis, right? You know, a few years ago, a taxi medallion cost a million dollars, right? And my Uber driver last week was a refugee who was just using his own car and, you know, earning a living just doing that, right? And much more convenient. I, I wouldn't even have a way to call a taxi, do that, but Uber just makes it so easy. So technology has really solved some unmet needs there. You know, look at Netflix disrupting Blockbuster, which by the way, kind of fun that they're making a show about the demise of Blockbuster, if you haven't heard that. But, you know, in, in 2000, Blockbuster collected nearly $800 million in late fees, right? Those of us who went to Blockbuster remember how painful that was. And so they came in and they solved this problem that we had just kind of accepted. And Netflix has also reinvented itself a few times, right? They went from DVDs to streaming to media. You know, 60% of Americans are streaming Netflix today. So it's these disruptive categories really change lives. Can I share a couple more examples that have changed my life? Please, please. And I'm, I'm, for the audience, I'm grinning thinking about Blockbuster, um, the uh, nodding my head. Totally. <laughs> so please give more. So, you know, one is Halo Top. I mean, those who work in consumer packaged goods or who like ice cream can appreciate this one. Um, Halo Top is, is the ice cream that uh, has, has just limited calories. It's like a better for you ice cream. And so, you know, ice cream was actually losing shelf space or freezer space rather to healthier alternatives. Halo Top founded in 2011, kind of at the rise of Netflix where binge watching was taking hold. Right. So again, it's now culturally acceptable to binge watch a show. I think everybody here does that. Right. And so, binge watching was kind of becoming a societal norm. And so binge eating, you kind of had permission to do too. So Halo Top came in and took a declining category and grew the category, right? Grew the shelf space. And now every competitor has a low calorie or protein added ice cream, right? And then the last example, and I think this one's obvious, but maybe I'll give a different perspective here. So Tesla has really opened the door for just consumer acceptance of electric vehicles, right? And what I love about Tesla is how deliberate they've been. I mean, Elon Musk, he shared his master plan, right? Hey, I'm going to come out with this high-end product and then I'm going to make it available to the masses. And he's done that. So I think when you look at these disruptive brands with disrupted categories, kind of like Traeger, they just see the world differently and they're kind of unabashed about it. And so it's really fun to be on the winning disruptive side is kind of my whole point. It's like these companies change lives. And so it's fun to work at a company that does that. Yeah. Well, and I think those are all fantastic examples of the disruptive by changing a paradigm or existing model, but also often the right business at the right time for broader societal trends and changes. And of course, the most obvious one in many cases uh, right now is thinking about 2020 on my bet is that you saw pretty explosive growth as a outcome of 2020. Is that a fair assumption? Absolutely. Yes. So where my, where my head was, was thinking in my personal life, all the examples that you shared, I don't know a Tesla, but of all of those, those brands were just benefited from being available as other changes took hold, kind of hitting tipping points and in, in changes in behavior and grilling, but also more of a sustainable model 
of grilling, which I would assume wood pellets would be an example of that. It's uh, you know a little more eco-friendly, et cetera, et cetera. And the snowball effect that comes when we hit that type of disruption. So I want to get into storytelling the data, but uh, one related question, just because I'm, I'm curious about it. Have there been adjacent categories or businesses that have formed or taken off as a result of Traeger's success? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, home cooking saw a massive rise in 2020, and a lot of people discovered a love of cooking, right? I mean, most people, if, if they hadn't cooked very much before, they kind of had to discover it during the pandemic, and then it stayed. You know, one kind of noteworthy one, Traeger acquired a meat thermometer company called Meter this last year, right? Because again, as, as people are cooking more, they, you know, one, one of the big secrets to cooking well is if you don't want to ever eat chicken that is overcooked or, you know, overcooked food, if you just use a meat thermometer, when chicken hits 165 degrees, it's done, right? It's still moist. It's, it's good. And so, yeah, meat thermometers, I've seen a huge uptick, right? Because people are cooking more and they want to perfect their craft, right? So that's one example of many. I mean, there's so many companies that have emerged out of this and for the better, right? I mean, my children won't have to eat uh, bad food, right? Uh, and, and many other people's as Traeger or, you know, just home cooking continues to rise. Yeah. All right. So that's, that is a good segue then into research specifically, and we can certainly use Traeger as an example of this. But while you're for this part of the conversation, I'm thinking of all of the different insights that could be gathered across this, this process, which I suspect in some cases are unconventional in some ways. It's looking at other trends, other categories to get that connection. Oh, wait, meat thermometers, which, which was probably a fairly logical one, but still wouldn't have occurred to me right out of the gate. So I'm glad you're in that, that job and not me. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> and so the process of, of collecting that information, but then communicating that strategically across the organization. So I know this is a passion for you since you also teach it. And you talked about this at IAX in Austin. Thank you. Around storytelling. So let's talk about your perspective on the process of collecting information but then fashioning that into something that is truly engaging and actionable from a data storytelling perspective. Just give us your, your take. So let's maybe take a step back. So rather, rather than getting into, you know, exactly my process at Traeger, and I think the basis, you know, of this podcast and what I teach is on storytelling, right? And that's really how you have to break through the clutter and really make a compelling argument to, you know, change a business or, or do whatever you want. So I'm going to actually start by telling you a story that's unrelated to grilling or anything. And I've actually never told this story in a public setting before. So you're in for a treat. And I'm going to kind of walk you through, after I tell this amazing story, I'll kind of walk through the parts of it and then say how it kind of relates to what I do. So let's hop in a time machine and we'll go back to when I was in my undergrad at Brigham Young University and I had discovered juggling and very quickly, I had kind of progressed and ended up buying a set of torches, right? So, so literally like the flaming torches that you do. So one of my first times doing it, I go up into this canyon in Provo, Utah with some friends and I'm torch juggling and with these flaming torches and how it works. And Lenny, have you, have you seen 
torch juggling before seen that yeah okay so so you dip it in kerosene at least the kind i have you dip it in, in kerosene and then you light it and then you juggle it and when it gets low you blow out the flame and you redip it in your bucket of kerosene basically and then you keep juggling so as i was doing this little show for my friends or maybe 20 or 30 people there the torches get low and i blow them out and go to stick them in this bucket of kerosene and what happened was i didn't blow them out all the way there's one of the torches was still lit and so i literally took this flaming torch and dipped it into this bucket of kerosene and you can imagine the fireball of you know of fire here and i am just totally ablaze like i am just totally on fire and to make matters worse i step on the edge of the bucket in this you know like frenzy and it just sprays the, the burning kerosene on me so i am i'm a human torch right i'm totally on fire and it's it's pretty unreal i mean unless you've been on fire which i hope nobody here listening has been everything kind of goes in slow motion it is extremely, extremely hot. And I just remember looking down at my right arm and just seeing it totally on fire and just thinking how hot it was. And then, so out of the crowd runs my friend, Tyler. I mean, everybody's screaming, freaking out. They don't know what to do. Runs my friend, Tyler. He's like a football player. He tackles me onto the ground and just rolls me, right? I mean, because you're not thinking to stop, drop, and roll. Like, you're just like how hot it is. So, and he just rolls me until I go out. And my life was saved, right? I was, I, it, it could have gone very differently. I would not be here on this podcast if it weren't for Tyler. So kind of an unreal experience, right? So scary in hindsight. And now I'm here. And if I torch struggle, I definitely have a fire extinguisher near me, right? <laughs> any, any reaction there? I, I don't, I got <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Boy, I don't know about our audience, but I am enraptured. And that's a first for the Green Book Podcast. We have never had a story of personal danger like that. And <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure what to say, Jason. I mean, I was trying to think of something funny, but... There's, I don't think there's anything, anything funny about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind a, of, oh my God, type of situation. Yeah. So, you know, I, I haven't thought about this, but it's kind of ironic. I work in grills, right? Fire <laughs> now. It's like a mop to the flame. So, let me break down the story. So, so, again, the story really has five parts. Any story has five parts, right? There's an exposition. I was in college, I discovered juggling. There's the rising action. Right. I'm there with my friends. I have these torches. There's the kerosene when the flame goes out. Right. I'm kind of setting the stage here. Then there's the climax. Right. I was on fire. It was really hot. My friend came, saved me. Right. And the falling action was I got rolled out. And the resolution is I survived. Right. So when you kind of break down the components of that story, like what makes that story interesting is that it follows a predictable cadence. Right. And so in data and, and in kind of doing what, you know, most listeners here are trying to do every day, right? You're trying to tell a story, you're trying to create action. And so in data, it, it should be similar to this torch juggling story I told, but it's often overlooked, right? So when you're working with data, you need to decide what kind of story you're going to tell, right? What is going to be the exposition, the rising action, the climax, the falling action, the resolution, right? And 
even to be more specific and, and make this more like my class, right? Specifically, there's kind of two ways to tell a story, right? So there's the narrative way where you're kind of setting up a problem and systematically solving it. And then there's discovery where you're kind of taking them along your journey. So the torch juggling story I told is a discovery story, right? I'm taking you piece by piece through it. I could have done it another way where, you know, I, I say, hey, I was on fire and here's all the different parts of, of what happened here, or I could have broken down differently. So again, people, people in their jobs just need to be thoughtful about what they're trying to do and approach it that way, right? And that's kind of how you create change because you, you tell a story, you get people interested, you have some takeaway, you know, the only takeaway you may get from this podcast is how this guy from Traeger caught himself on fire and that's fine. At least you remembered something, right? So to kind of go back to your original question, you just have to be so thoughtful about the story you tell and what you want the takeaway to be. We're going to take a quick pause to highlight our podcast partner, My Take. Worried you don't have the most advanced research tech or that your partners won't be able to keep up with the speed of your business? My Take is your answer. Their innovative proprietary insight community platform is redefining community capabilities with advanced features such as integrated online focus groups and experiences web UX testing. In addition, their team of fast and flexible researchers will ensure your organization truly integrates the voice of the customer into decision-making. My take, tech forward, people-centered. If you'd like to learn more, visit mytake.com. That's M-Y-T-A-K-E dot com. No, that's uh, that's great. I'm still so I'm trying to transition away from the uh, the on fire piece of things. Um, but <laughs> the, <laughs> I'm still flabbergasted. Um, so the grit report, for example, that we produce as a publisher, and at its core, Green Book is a a publisher is a media company, and we've evolved far more to that point now than we were before. And there's been a very healthy tension to force myself and the team that produces grip particularly to embrace those ideas about what makes for a good publication you know things like engagement and visualization etc cetera, etc cetera. and there's times that it's been uncomfortable and we've even had i'm sure you can relate to this kind of even knock down drag out fights of you know we need to present the data this way this is what we you know it's yes. a bar chart you know, it, it can't yeah. be sexy. It's a bar chart. It's just the way that it is. At least it's not a pie chart. So that's good. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a couple of those too. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to get to the, the point here. And I think it's relevant to what you were saying. I was taught early on that we start with the beginning in mind for any research project, right? Who is our audience? Ultimately, that's going to consume the product of this. What's the objective for even conducting the research? What business decision are they trying to reach? And that lends itself towards this is how we need to communicate the insights most effectively for this audience. And everything else flows backwards from there. Now, what questions do we need to ask, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think as an industry, we are certainly evolving at that end point of not just ensuring that we're answering the business question, but ensuring that we are making the output as a product consumable and shareable 
within an organization because that helps with actionability overall. Right. And that just means very specific things in, in how we visualize information. And it may be kind of a pain in the ass. And quite frankly, it is, you know, sometimes needing to, to you know, oh gosh, now we have to create an infographic. And it's kind of cheesy, but it is effective for this specific audience to have this piece of information, right, conveyed in a very visually compelling way to help support the story. Because we're not always going to be there to talk somebody through it to tell the story of the juggling, right? And it's still amazing how I think we struggle with that as an industry, particularly on the supplier side. What I'm hearing from you is how you are helping on the buyer side of you know driving that forward. Because the more that folks like you say, this is how it needs to be done, because this is how it best supports my role in the organization, the more the supplier community will continue to adapt and change just as I've adapted and changed within producing grit within green book. Does that make sense? Totally. I mean, what I teach my students is the same principles, what you talked about, right? I have them write down what I call their dangerous idea, right? Where, where they, they literally have to commit to paper. What's the positive outcome? What are people going to remember? And then, then you kind of systematically approach the problem. I think back when I worked in media, for example, I would have all these spreadsheets, all the data that you wanted to have. You know, I had clients and, you know, I'd put it into a PowerPoint and I'd go to the meeting. But the team, the people who I was presenting to, I mean, they would just want to know if things were good, right? I mean, it was just missing context and there wasn't anything sticky there. And that was kind of the problem. You know, one thing I think about is, uh, and, and this is a quick example, but there's this cool hotel. It's called the Magic Castle Hotel. It's kind of highlighted in a book by the Heath brothers. And quick context on this hotel. It's a converted two-story apartment complex that was built in the 50s. And it's canary yellow. And it's across the street from a park in LA. And it's one of the top rated hotels in the United States. And it costs about as much to stay there as the Disneyland Hotel. And th- this this hotel is kind of unique because, you know, it, it's normal rooms and everything. But when you go to the pool, there's a little red phone. And if you pick it up, somebody answers, they say, hello, Popsicle hotline. And you tell them, you know, if you want a uh, grape cherry or orange Popsicle brought to you. And then literally somebody in a butler suit walks out with a tray with the Popsicles you ordered. Right. And What's kind of cool about this, you know, if I were describing a trip to Disneyland, I might talk about how my kid threw up on Space Mountain or whatever. And then I would probably say, you know, and we stayed at this hotel and they had this popsicle hotline. Get this. Like there was a butler, whatever. My kids thought it was so cool. So here, here's what I think is cool about this, this hotel, right? So, and this is, this will kind of bring us back home. So the data scientists, the, you know, insights people, you know, they did this review scrape of TripAdvisor. And what they found was that visitors who reported a delightful surprise, 94% expressed an unconditional willingness to recommend the hotel compared to 60% of guests who were very satisfied. And so if, if you think about that, like it would be so tempting to do a whole review scrape of TripAdvisor and to share all the metrics, right? 
hey, when you're priced at this, when you're in this location, I mean, there's a million questions that that you could answer and, and have a very thorough report, right? But I, I think what makes this insight unique with the 94% of people who were delightfully surprised is those people found a story in that data, right? And that is the takeaway. So in the work I do, I would work relentlessly to find an insight like that. And rather than just share the weather, you know, share the, the whole report, which is very tempting, right? You did all this work and it was, you know, so long and whatever, whatever your methodology. I think getting to the point, which is the delightful surprise, and then you have a discussion about how you create delightful surprises or what you could change in your business. That's how you unlock growth. That's how you have a good, that's how you have just positive outcomes. And so I think too often we're stuck in the reporting, right? I did a review Skype of TripAdvisor. Here's everything I found. Choose whatever you want. And so, so that's, that's kind of how, how you get to just telling better stories and finding better insights is, is looking for things and guiding it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Getting to the point. I love that description of the delightful surprise. So Earlier, we were talking about kind of you know, finding your avocation and how so many of us kind of stumble into research. And then there's folks like you that, that are more directed into this. And I've often thought that traditionally within the insight space, a lot of folks get into this because they like data. Let's say you mentioned data scientists, and that's a very specific skill set. So I have one of my partners within in Grit internally, Nelson Whipple. Nelson is a data jockey. He is brilliant. He does things that I can't even begin to even want to learn how to do, right, for the data. And that's a very specific skill set that doesn't always lend itself towards telling a story. And we're seeing an evolution now where I think we are looking at skill sets that are different than the traditional research profile, statisticians, methodologists, et cetera, et cetera. I expect you're an example of this that are far more versed in in communicating effectively to get to that story that throughput or output versus the process of how to conduct research do you agree with that that we're seeing a change in profile so i think our field is becoming less academic i mean our, our field was born from academia and and obviously you need i would say the expectation now is that that you're doing things that are that are the right approach, right? I, I don't think executives need to know, you know, exactly why you chose your methodology or whatever, right? What the statistical significance is, the expectations trust. What I would say though, is that's kind of one of the most frustrating issues right now is, you know, you look at, you know, teams of people who build these big reports, for example, and, you know, they're just trying to shotgun it with lots of data, right? What's the takeaway? That should be the focus, right? You have these smart people, you should channel that, right? Or you have people just trying to show off, right? I mean, you look at these public Tableau dashboards that that are just almost ridiculous and how beautiful they are, but it's hard to get any big takeaway from it, right? I would ask the question, what if you had to create a TED Talk with your data? Even if you're a data scientist, how many charts would you actually have? Would you go through the methodology and, and everything? No, you wouldn't. If you're creating a TED Talk, you're trying to showcase something interesting that people walk away inspired and, you know, wanting to change their lives. And so you almost need to change your mentality a bit. Maybe let me share a, a funny story. This just happened. We we're doing some market research 
And I went with some coworkers to a nice restaurant and they were talking about wine and how, you know, their favorite kind of wines and everything. And I actually don't drink. And I just had this idea. It's like, Hey, what if, what if I just order four glasses of, of wine blind and you guys need to rank order them from cheapest to most expensive. Right. So I ordered four glasses of wine and they're sitting there, you know, taking notes and debating and, you know, all, all of these things. And, you know, the color of this one and whatever, and kind of unbeknownst to them, what I had done, uh, and this, this is kind of mean, but the first glass of wine I ordered was the most expensive. And then, uh, the next one was the cheapest. And then the next one was the cheapest. And then the last one was the cheapest. So the last three were the exact same wines and you should have heard them, you know, they're, they're comparing, you know, the the nodes of cinnamon and whatever. And this one's much richer than the last one. It was so funny. And so when I broke the news to them that, you know, the last three were all the cheapest wines and they're all, you know, they were just laughing hysterically. They thought it was great. But what I would say is like, even if you've been drinking wine a long time, doesn't mean that you're an expert in wine, right? Just because you've been doing a report for years, you're a data jockey, you're whoever, like things change and you kind of have to evolve, right? And so you have to kind of go from being this casual wine drinker who's tried wine, you know, you're, you're, you have all these reports or ways that you approach it. And to truly become a sommelier, you have to just evolve and, and streamline. And my argument is, is you need to tell better stories with your data. You need to get to the point way faster than you are now. That's how you go from being a, a casual or even professional market researcher to really a next level employee. Well, that is great advice. Now we'll be conscious of your time and the time of our listeners, but that drives to a question. So what is the core attribute that you look for in either one in, in hiring for your team? And then secondly, in hiring a supplier to help your team? What's that core attribute? So I read this great book, uh, somewhat recently called range. And it, the argument goes that, you know, some of the most successful people in the world, you know, if you look at Nobel prize winners or other people, they're actually very good at a lot of things, right? They have, they have lots of interests. Um, they, they come from different backgrounds, right? To be a, a Nobel winning chem chemist, you might also be really into the arts and things that you learn from there you apply and that's kind of what makes you the next level. So when I hire people, I look for range, right? How do they approach problems? Do they approach problems holistically? You know, I, I would say, are they bringing in things outside of the category? You know, before I hire somebody, I'll have them do a project. And that's kind of what I look for is like, besides what they did with the data or, or you know, whatever the project is, is that they look outside of it, right? And so I would say the same with suppliers. It's, it's like, how do you take, you know, if it's qual or quant or whatever, how do you take what you, what you found in doing the research and how do you make it comparable and applicable to us? Like, what are, what's the industry standards? What are, what are other people doing? What are the parallels with other categories or industries? That's where they add value, right? And they can add that value because they work in different industries and categories, right? So I would say that's kind of what I look for is just, just range. Okay. All right. Then final question related to that. So if you're looking for, for range across the board, what does the future of insights look like 
from your perspective? Are we becoming more polymaths as an industry overall or more specialists in specific issues? And I think it can go either way, in my own opinion. Do you agree with that or do you think something entirely different? What's, what's your take? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think technology will only propel our industry forward, right? So I guess, I guess to specifically answer your question, I imagine people in our field doing a wider range of, pro- of projects and solving a wider range of problems than they're probably solving right now. I think a lot of times, you know, we're, we're looked at, hey, let's do a survey. We got to talk to consumers. I, I think as technology enables us and unlocks more of our time, we can be working on a wider variety of problems. So for example, like a great example of this is unmoderated interviews have really unlocked just a lot of time, the the technology alone to be able to go watch an interview or even read a transcription of an interview without having to have conducted it, flown to a city, done it. Again, the output's a little different because you can't, you know, dive deeper into a question. Like there's some drawbacks, but I would say at service level, it's, it's a big unlock, right? And so what that allows us to do is maybe talk to more consumers and involve consumers in more decisions that we're trying to make across the business. So, yeah, I I think I think we're just going to be working on bigger, more interesting problems as time goes on. Well, from your lips to God's ears. (laughs) I do agree, actually. And speaking of data, right, even in the grit data, we see that the the insights function now encompasses more business issues than it used to. And it's, I rarely use the term market research anymore. I, I refer to our, our industry as insights and analytics because it's a broader bucket that captures the breadth of things. But we see in the data, we see that you know, on the brand side, on the buyer side, you know, web analytics, you know, UX, CX, those are things that were siloed even a few years ago. They were separate categories. And the data indicates that no, they're now. At the very least, the insights function is a heavy influencer, if not the decision maker and owner of these more more diverse business issues that are, are niche, specialized in many ways, but holistically connect into the business across the board. And I think that's really exciting. And I see you nodding, so I suspect that at Traeger, that's that's more of the perspective, right? That it's all under that umbrella. For sure. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. All right. So we could go on for a lot longer. I still can't get over the uh, the juggling story. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and for the audience who can't see, you look totally unscathed. So I hope that that was the case that you you actually it was scary, but no no serious injuries. You know, hair grows back, and uh, <laughs> you know it's uh, it's it's been a while. But no, and and I hope you know what I hope what the listeners got from that story or others is you know you should just be deliberate, right? Think about the story you're going to tell. In the next report you build, right? Set aside time to think through it, right? Decide if you want a narrative or discovery story and then wireframe your report before you even start building it, right? You can be very thoughtful about the story you want and then go approach it. So I, I think if you do that, we all get 1% better. And that's kind of the whole point of this. Right? I think that's great. And would it be bad if I said, and if you don't, you're going to get burned? Um, <laughs> you gotta laugh right that's great i love it yes (laughs) all right jason thank you this was really a a delightful conversation really appreciate it. i hope we have a chance to uh to chat again thank you so much for taking the time 
to our listeners, thank you for taking your time and sharing uh, with us. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And, and hopefully Jason enjoyed it a little bit as well. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.